Hi, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our broadcast. Some of the popular phrases we hear in the church today are things like, you don't have to do anything, the gospel's free and so are you. Don't let anyone tell you you have to do anything, that's just legalism. Was all this true? Let's find out in our sermon from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's off to work we go. So open up your Bibles, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Here's something we hear every now and then, rising up out of the church. Oh, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. It's all about grace. You're free. You're free to do nothing. Now, we hear that from different corners. We don't hear it much here at WBF, but some of you have read it and heard it in other places. I'm here this morning to tell you something. The gospel is hard work. The gospel is hard work. So the title of our sermon today is, It's Off to Work We Go. Now, I know what I just did to you. <laughs> yeah, little elves dancing around on the TV screen. <laughs> so here's where we are in, in 2 Corinthians. Sometime during the early to mid-50s of the first century, Paul is in Corinth, where uh, after what appears to be an unsuccessful trip through Macedonia and Greece, Nothing's really worked all that well. Gets a huge shot of encouragement when, when he hears that, of all places, in Thessalonica, 
the church era is growing in faith and, and spreading the gospel, but it's coming at a terrible price. Churches experiencing persecution. Now, they seem to be handling it pretty well, but they're a young church and they're not yet mature in their knowledge of Scripture. Scripture's not even completed. All the teaching they're getting is coming out of the Old Testament and from these letters that the apostles are sending. But this church hasn't yet developed their theology to the point that they really are able to recognize false teaching, or maybe not necessarily false teaching, but not, not really good teaching when it arises. So some folks have created a lot of turmoil and a lot of doubt concerning the return of Christ. Others don't seem to want to do much of anything. They're, they're struggling on two issues here. Maybe the two problems are related. Maybe they're not. Paul's first letter hits two points very lightly, and the second letter, he goes deeper. Now, the two points we're talking about is this return of Christ and the, those who are idle. Uh, and the problem with the return of Christ is all kinds of teaching going around. And some people are saying that Christ has already come back. And it's kind of like, well, Christ has already come back. What are you doing here? <laughs> if he's going to take everybody with him, how come you got left behind? And so there's a lot of turmoil. So last week, we heard some solid teaching from Paul uh, on the end times. And actually, what we heard was some solid teaching on how the church should react to the end times. The details weren't important. It was how the church responds to them. And the details remain a little bit of a mystery. And that we should be okay with that uh, because we don't know everything that's going to happen right now. We see through a glass darkly. So here in chapter 3, Paul addresses this issue of idleness. And he's going to make... You're going to make three statements. We'll see Paul's request in verses 1 through 5. We'll see Paul's reprimand in verses 6 through 14. And we'll see Paul's final remarks in verses 15 through 17. So here's, here's the request. He says in verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us. Paul asked for prayer. He asked this young church to pray for him. Uh, now, they may be young and they may be struggling, but they're part of the body and if they can't do anything at all, they can pray. And I think Paul puts a very high priority on prayer. It's not like the last thing you can do. He's probably mentioning this because it's the first thing he wants them to do. So why, what are they going to pray for? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So he wants them to pray that other people can receive the same blessing that they have received that others will be saved through the gift of the gospel. Now, Paul's imagery here uh, will remind the Greeks of the Olympic Games, what, you know, it's where all of this started. The ones where uh, the, the Olympics we see today have their roots. Paul frequently refers to the Christian life as a race. And his readers would immediately understand that Paul is asking the gospel, that the gospel be spread very quickly and be honored the way the winner of a race would be honored. It's held in high esteem. So Paul has another request, that, that he and his men have been harassed all along, and it's something that Thessalonians would know very well. So Paul asks them to pray in verse 2, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. A little bit of a caution. Some people look like they have faith, but that fruit's not being produced in their lives. So he's praying that Paul and his men will be protected from ungodly people. 
And yes, there are ungodly people out there. We know that. But sometimes there are ungodly people in the church. And we have to be aware of it. Paul is fully aware that their only hope is in God. And what he's saying to the Thessalonian church is that the primary weapon that the church has against ungodly people, whether they're in or they're out of the church, is prayer. The enemy, think about this. The enemy of our souls has no defense against two things. One of them is prayer, because that is communion between us and the Father. And the the other, listen carefully, the other is blessing. Satan doesn't know what to do with that stuff. Oh, they're talking to God. I'm going to try and stop them from doing that. (laughs) Because that's dangerous to him. Oh, they're blessing each other. He can't get in there and mess things up. Prayer and blessing are our two primary weapons against the ungodly people, against the evil that's in the world. Think about that. Think about that the next time you encounter evil in your life. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. We're supposed to bless them. We'll get to that. That's not easy. But Paul asks them to pray. Pray for being delivered from wicked men. But the Lord is faithful, he says in verse 3. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, Paul's praying for them. Even as he asks them to pray for him, he's praying for them. They're praying for Paul. In all this prayer, things begin to happen. God moves in and through his people to place them on a firm foundation. As they engage in prayer, as they engage in solid foundational teaching, God begins to firm the foundation up beneath them. And he begins to equip them to resist the evil one. So we're more equipped to stand against the plots of the enemy when we are scripturally aware, when we have a solid relationship with our Father. In verse 4, he says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now, don't miss this. Paul is confident that they will pray. He's confident in the fact that they will pray because the Lord is already working in them and is faithful. The evidence of the fact that God is working in them is the fact that the church is healthy despite the challenges that it's facing. Paul is embracing a scriptural concept here. He kind of lays it out in his letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, God started a good work in the church at Philippi, and he started a work in Thessalonica. Notice, God started. It started with God. Not a man, not a group of people. Paul knows that all the great things that are happening in the Thessalonican church are because the Lord is working. The Lord is not working because of what they do. They are doing what they're doing because the Lord is working. Do you see the difference between that? They're not catalyzing God to do something. They're being faithful in their prayer. They're being faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. They're learning the word. And as a result of that, God is working working in and through them. And the evidence that God is working 
is the fact that they're handling the troubles that they're going through in such a grand manner. It all starts with God. So they read and they pray, they seek God, he works in them, and the things that they do become evidence of his presence. In verse 5, Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So Paul's first statement is this request for prayer. And the prayer is that God will continue to work in them and, and in their church, in them as they remain faithful and Christ continues to strengthen them. It's, it's a rotation that gets stronger and stronger as it continues. Then I move to Paul's second statement, this reprimand, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Check the phrasing here. It's important. It's not a suggestion Paul's not offering an option here. It's a command. It's a commandment. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, this is just Paul. I mean, we see that from time to time, don't we? It's Paul. It's not the Lord. Paul is very careful to state in the name of this. And again, we hear this sort of thing from time to time. That's just Paul's opinion. And, you know, it particularly pops up. Every now and then, Paul says, I say not the Lord. And somehow, we think that because Paul says, I say not the Lord, that this is an option, that Paul kind of slipped this in, that Paul was writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said, now, wait a minute, God, I got something to say here. I got something I want to add to this. So we need to, when, when we look at Scripture that we struggle with, We need to understand our doctrine of inspiration. That all scripture is inspired by God. And good for doing all the things that he designed it to do. So that means if all scripture is inspired by God, there aren't any opinions in here other than God's. Paul's not offering options. He's not saying, oh, I know you've been taught this thing, but I'm going to teach you something different. Whenever Paul does this, he's adding to and strengthening the the teaching that has already been there. So, now, we have to take into account the context. In every case, it's really important. But there, there are no passages. There are no passages that we get to disregard. There's no verse in the Bible that we get to ignore. There's nothing in the Bible that we can stand up and go, well, that doesn't apply to me. There's some I'd like to be able to say that. But sometimes the scripture's hard. We can't just cast it aside because we think some man wrote them. They're all from God, and they're all meant for our teaching and for our welfare. So the Holy Spirit commands through Paul that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, that should raise two questions for us. What is this idleness, and what tradition is Paul talking about? As far as idleness is concerned, it it is what it sounds like. It has to do with work. It has to do with labor. But it also has to do with inappropriate behavior. There's there's a conjunction kind of here of, of terms. Uh, I I like the NIV here. It says, walking in idleness as being idle and disruptive. So Paul is speaking of those, listen to me carefully. Paul is speaking of those who are able to work, 
but choose not to. They are idle. They are refusing to work, and they're causing chaos and confusion in the church. Everything's being turned upside down. Paul's not talking about those who cannot work. He's talking about those who won't work. The idol that Paul is referring to are folks who can work and won't, and in their idle time, they're causing problems. Now, there's some question as to what tradition Paul's talking about. Bible scholars can't agree on it. I think he describes a tradition in the next two verses. So we know what idleness is, is those who won't work. And Paul says, according to our tradition, and he describes that tradition, in, starting in verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. The tradition was what Paul demonstrated in front of them. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked through night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. This kind of infers that these idle people are a burden upon the church. Verse 9, he says, it was not because we don't have that right. He said, we could have done it. You, you could have supported us. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, whether or not that was a new tradition or not, we really don't know. But Paul reminds them that he and his crew of people, his team, While they were in Thessalonica, they worked hard. And they did this to show the church how this new community should function. Everybody who's able to work should be working. Now, we can spend a lot of time talking about the nature of that work. I I mean, because it, it works on several different levels, doesn't it? It works on the level of you should be out there earning your own living if you can. But it also means that everybody who has a position in the church, and that would be all of us, you know, the church is made up of many people with many gifts, should be exercising those gifts to do the work of the gospel. And Paul did all this to show this this new church how the community comes together. And my conjecture is that Paul did this as an example to them so that collectively they would learn to use the resources they have to take care of those who wanted to work but couldn't. You know, and if I'm right, then we're talking about two groups of people, those who won't work but can and those who want to work but can't. And Paul's given the okay for the church to take care of those who want to work but can't. We're talking about the poor, the legitimately poor, and the disabled. Maybe some are too old to work. I think what Paul says next kind of supports this, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Where does that come from? You've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What happened in the garden when God began to issue the, the, the consequences of their sin? God tells Adam he's going to have to work in the ground to produce food to eat. And he says the ground is going to fight you. But the implication back then was that there would be no food without any work. They were in the garden. They had everything they needed. They violated God's commandment. Now they're outside the garden. They've got to grow their own food. So to the Jew, this would kind of bring up the idea. Well, I'm sorry. Back up to verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so this busy body thing is interesting. 
Um, Paul's kind of laying this out that you have to work if you want to eat. You can't be a busybody. To the Jew, the word would bring up the image of one who puts his spoon in the cup of another. To the Greek, to the Greek, it would bring up the image of one who's always telling someone else how to run their business. In any language, Paul wants us to think of those people who mind everybody's business but their own and cause friction because of it. This would encompass a lot of people. Gossips, complainers, argumentative types, uh, rebels, divisive people, anyone who spent more time being unproductive than in building the kingdom would fall in this category, in particular, if they weren't willing to work. Now, verse 12 says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. The same inspired verses we've seen before. It's almost as if Paul is saying, you know who you are, and everybody knows who I'm talking about. You know, you work harder at doing nothing than you work at anything else. You know, you try to stir the pot, try to pit one group against another, you whisper in corners, spend most of your time and effort avoiding honest work. Paul wants to make sure everyone knows he's not complaining about everyone in the church, just those who are causing trouble. They're a minority. So he says, as for you, brothers, now he turns his attention back to the church. Do not grow weary in doing good. He's saying, don't let all this wear you out. Don't let these people drain you. Drain your physical resources, your spiritual resources. Keep doing the things you know you should be doing. Gently, and I emphasize gently, bring into correction the people who are doing these disruptive things. And then, in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul's second statement is this reprimand towards those folks who are causing dissension and towards those folks who are causing disunity in the body. Paul says, you know, if they don't listen to you, be nice, but show them the door. Don't have anything to do with them. So Paul's last statement is a set of remarks. And, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I get to the greeting and the benediction, I'm like, okay, the letter's done. Let me kind of get through this and get down to the end. But there's something to be learned here. Listen carefully. Verse 16, Paul's remarks. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, watch what happened here. Paul began this letter with an encouragement and a blessing. You remember? Okay. And he ends it, he ends it the same way. Paul's teaching us something here. He wants to let them know that he wrote it personally. There are times when Paul used an amuensis, 
<laughs> he used somebody to write down what he was saying. So he had a, he had a scribe. So there were times when Paul did that, uh, but and that was mostly later in his career. But he wanted to let these, this, this young church know that he wrote this letter himself, and he wanted to convey his heartfelt blessings. So let, let's take a look at what we, what we just did. We had Paul's request. He encourages them to be faithful so that Christ can strengthen them, so that they can do that in, in faith. Now, it is, is he telling them to have some kind of fuzzy feeling about this? Is he telling them to have the right motivation with this? Is he, is he telling them that this should be some sort of deep spiritual experience? And, and it, can be, it can be all those things. We've all had those moments when we've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and we've been moved deeply inside. But in the long run, being faithful and steadfast comes from knowledge of the word of God. It comes from knowing who God is. As we equip ourselves by reading and praying and teaching the Bible, we come to know more about God. Now, I used to have a friend. He's a great guy. But every now and then, he would pick up a book and he'd go, you know, your faith isn't in this book. It's in the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus Christ. And, you know, for a while, that kind of threw me for a loop because my faith isn't in a book. But I wouldn't know about the Holy Spirit if I didn't read the book. I wouldn't know about salvation if I didn't read the book. I wouldn't know about Jesus Christ if, even if I couldn't read, if somebody didn't read the book to me. How can you even make a statement, say, your faith isn't in the book, it's in something that you can't experience, something that's kind of uh, nebulous, okay? It starts with the book. Some folks get tired of me saying you need to read your Bible. But there's no other way. Experiences and feelings, as great as they are, they come and go. If we want to know about the blessings, we want to know the presence and the strength of God, the only place we can find that all is in his word. We have to be people of the word. Everything we know, everything we need comes from being immersed in our Bible, including our need to pray. So when Paul says, pray for me, He's counting on the fact that they're reading their Bibles and understand what prayer is. Then he makes his reprimand. He knows that the church is having monumental struggles. There's confusion over their doctrine. The new community is still trying to find how all this works. On the top of all that, people are losing everything. Some people are dying. In the middle of all that, they've got people taking advantage of the church, freeloaders, troublemakers, People who do nothing more than cause more trouble and more confusion. People who want to live off the other folks in the church. Paul says, don't let him do this. Working is a commandment. If we're able to work, they should work. Now, we've seen this type before. They've come as long as they get financial help, but they leave when the financial help gets cut off. This is, this is why we have an internal policy on benevolence. We will, we will help financially people who are in the church and people who know people in the church. Because I'm going to tell you something. Every week, somebody knocks on our door and says, can I have some money? 
And they, they, they all have a story. It's all a great story. And if you've heard it for the first time, you want to do that. But I guarantee you, if you give them money, there'll be two people next week, and one of them will be the guy that was here the first week. Because that's what they do. They live by asking people for money. So we want to be wise in our resources. We want to be good stewards of what God's given us. So we're a bit more careful about who we help. If you know somebody that needs financial help, and you know they're having a valid struggle, come to us. We'll empty the coffers for it. But if you spend all of your day walking around town asking people for money, we're not going to help. We had a guy here a couple weeks ago. Got to like have $20 for gas. I need to get to Culpeper. Everybody needs to get to Culpeper. And I said, we had some people standing with us. I said, I'm sorry, we don't have a gas fund. And he blinked. And he said, what? I said, I'm sorry, we don't have a gas fund. So you're not going to help me? I'll tell you what, why don't you stay for the service and we'll talk afterwards. I don't have time for that. I need gas. I got to get the Culpeper. I said, I'm sorry. Now, it seems a little harsh, but isn't that what Paul just said? Then Paul said, be careful about how you do this. We don't get many freeloaders in the congregation here, but they show up at our door. And the desire is to try and help them. It just, it's never productive. So he makes these remarks and, and he says, don't have anything to do with these people. Cut them off. And then, then he says, there, there's just this, this, the ending, the, the last things he has to say. Listen very carefully. Paul has a personal, heartfelt blessing, and he gives it with all the authority that he has as an apostle. And we can learn from this. Paul's showing us in this greeting and this blessing how we should relate to each other, how we become a community, how we should be able to greet each other with a blessing. Now, I like that. Okay, that's easy enough, amen. Hello, God bless you. That should be part of our, my, my friend Andre, every time he, he calls me, he says, John, God bless you. I love that because I got at least that blessing for the day, amen. So that's easy. We appreciate it. We love it. But brothers and sisters, we should be able to depart from each other with the same type of blessing. Now that can be a little bit harder. And we've got to keep in mind what Paul's trying to do here. He had a strong message. He had to confront the spiritual children of his church with a few issues. And he did it directly and without equivocation. And he ends with a blessing. Actually, he ends with multiple blessings. Oh, brothers and sisters, we can master the art of beginning a confrontation with a blessing and ending it with a blessing. I told you, the enemy has no defense against blessing. If you've got an issue with a brother or a sister, and you end that discussion with a blessing, you can almost hear Satan run out the door. Can't do anything about it. And all of a sudden, you can feel the weight being lifted from your shoulders. I don't have to deal with this heaviness. If only we could end every confrontation with a blessing. See, this is why the gospel is hard work. Hard work. 
In order to engage in the gospel, in order to do the things that Paul's asking us to do, we have to crucify our flesh. We have to go contrary to our nature. We have to go contrary to our hearts. Oh, I'm just doing what my heart tells me to do. Scripture says your heart is deceitful. Oh, that's in the Old Testament. God's giving me a new heart. He is. But it ain't new yet. We have to go against our nature. That's hard work. We have to do it conscientiously. We have to be thinking about it. But it has to be done if we are ever going to work together the way we're supposed to work together for the sake of the gospel. Really an incredible little letter, isn't it? Throughout both of these letters, we've heard Paul mention frequently the evidence of salvation. The evidence of righteousness and the justice of God functioning in his church. And that's an indication that God is working in us, setting us apart, making us his representative, asking us to show the world what grace and mercy look like. Two short letters do all that. If we understand this, then we should also understand that our salvation is by grace. But it's not so that we can sit back and enjoy the pleasures of being saved. That that would make our salvation all about us, wouldn't it? God wants me to be happy. He wants me to relax. He doesn't want me to do anything. That's an incredibly flawed theology. Jesus didn't take on flesh. He didn't suffer on the cross so that we could enjoy being irresponsible about the grace that we've received. Jesus did it so that we could do what Paul says he does. Imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. Paul says it over and over again. Brothers and sisters, Paul was a worker. Christ was a worker. He was a carpenter for 30 years, at least 27 they both work for the glory of God, and we should too. But we're called, we're called to do it together. Each one of us has a part. This is why Paul wants us to be wary of takers. People who are in the church to get what they can get. Jesus certainly didn't come to earth to get what he could get. He came to earth to give, to sacrifice himself. See the title of the series was living it out what do we do with all this how do we walk in this Paul shows us how to handle touchy issues with we do it with thanks and with blessing and with forthrightness but with gentleness as well Paul wants that's what he's doing that's what he wants his church to do Paul shows us not to take our eyes off the prize not to get distracted by secondary issues like the end time or anything else. The church is here to be a source of gospel teaching. And we don't allow minor doctrinal issues to cloud that. We don't allow poor teaching to interfere with it. We don't allow people who are doing nothing to take away from it. We don't allow our difficulties to keep us from being thankful for each other and for blessing each other. 
We hold tightly to foundational teaching. We, we cling desperately to God's word. And we refuse. We refuse to let anybody drag us away from all of that. And we do that by reading and understanding our Bibles, by applying them, to by living like people who have been given the most precious gift that you can ever receive in all eternity, and it's eternal life with Christ. He died on the cross so that we could have all this that Paul's writing about. And all we have to do is embrace it and apply it to our lives. One of the prayers I have every Sunday morning, ask God for accuracy that his word might be rightly divided. I ask God for clarity that everybody that hears this word would be understand it easily. I ask God for fire that the passion he's given me for his word would kindle flames in the spirits of others that they might be drawn deeper into a relationship with him as well. And I ask him for life, that we might be able to appropriate the truths that we hear in God's word in our daily lives and walk in a manner worthy of the high and holy calling that he's put upon us. We do that together, amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the brilliance of Paul, inspired by you, Father, to write these words down for our nourishment and our edification. We pray by the presence and power of your spirit, Father, that you would enable us, encourage us, Father, to immerse ourselves in them, to do the things that you command us to do, but to do it with gentleness, Father, without judgment, with mercy, with grace, conveying blessing upon each other, and giving thanks for each other, even as we give thanks for you and the sacrifice your son made for us. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I thank you for the prayers. I asked you if you wanted me to preach on something next week. Uh, I have a very special sermon next week, The Crown of Glory. So you can look in Proverbs 16 and see what I'm talking about. Um, but the week after, we will start a new series in First John, What's Love Got to Do With It? So I know what I just did there, too. <laughs> God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.